the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Follow us at uh, danproftshow.com. You can find all the podcasts there as well as at iTunes and Spotify, of course. Social media at Dan Proft Show as well as at Dan Proft. And uh, we begin on this Friday with uh, the decision by San Francisco Mayor Gavin, uh, San Francisco Mayor, yeah, he was, now uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom to uh, East Berlin, the state of California. We direct a statewide order for people to stay at home. That directive goes into force and effect this evening. And we were confident, we are confident that the people of the state of California will abide by it. Well, in case you're not confident, uh, Eric Garcetti, the mayor of L.A., to talk to, to uh, Chris Cuomo about deputizing bureaucrats to uh, walk the streets and check on people to make sure they're abiding the shelter-in-place order. Uh, Garcetti also talking about uh, law-abiding citizens, quote-unquote, going crazy by obtaining guns. Uh, this against the backdrop of the same Garcetti, along with other big city demayors, openly talking and moving to release prisoners who are otherwise in confined spaces for fear of spreading the virus. So you're releasing prisoners, including those who may be violent, including those who you may think likely to commit additional crimes, uh, as well as in places like Philadelphia, telling the police to stand down with respect to particular criminal offenses. And then you're also telling people they're crazy if they obtain the means of self-protection. Uh, this is if you think the politicians have your back. Uh, one other uh, piece before we get to our guest on the topic. Um, this uh, this piece from uh, in uh, Time magazine from Yuval Harari, who is the uh, best-selling author of uh, Homo Deus. Uh, this is sort of the utopian a bioworld of coke vision and philosophy, I think, that undergirds so much of what you hear from politicians. In the fight against viruses, he writes, humanity needs to closely guard borders, but not the borders between countries. It needs to guard the border between the human world and the virus sphere. Planet Earth is teeming with countless viruses and new viruses are constantly evolving due to genetic mutations. The borderline separating this virus sphere from the human world passes inside the body of each and every human being. If the dangerous virus manages to penetrate this border anywhere on Earth, it puts the whole species in danger. Okay, that's fair enough. But what's the real problem today? He writes, today humanity faces an acute crisis, not only due to coronavirus, but due to the lack of trust between humans. To defeat an epidemic, people need to trust scientific experts. Citizens need to trust public authorities. And countless uh, and countries, excuse me, need to trust each other. Over the last few years, irresponsible politicians have deliberately undermined trust in science and public authorities and in international cooperation. As a result, we're now facing this crisis bereft of global leaders that can inspire, organize and finance a coordinated global response. 
Mm. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law, New York University Law School, Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago, author of one, one of my favorite books from an economist, Simple Rules for a Complex World. Richard Epstein, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. I'm very glad to be here. So with respect to um, the decision by Newsom and the uh, sort of philosophical observation by Harari that we just need more cooperation and more trust in uh, government officials and more belief in science, what's your response? Um, I think we ought to have more belief in science and statistics and less faith in government and certainly none of the morbid pessimism associated with Mr. Ferrari, I believe was his name. Uh, You start looking at these numbers, and let me just sort of give what the projection is before we critique it. I think at present in California, the number of deaths from the various viruses is about 20, and I believe it's 18 actually, and four of those have been several weeks ago. So you've had 14 deaths probably in the last two to three weeks, which is one a day. He is projecting when he puts forward this claim for the quarantine or the lockdown uh, that there will be uh, basically over half the people in the state will get the virus, uh, which is numbers he puts at 26 million. If you then try to figure out, he says, what the death rate is going to be over the next eight weeks, that works out if, quote, nothing is done when much has been done, to 5,000 per day. If his program is effective, he likes to think he could taper it to 2,500 a day. I'm standing here now with the global uh, death uh, screen, which has all the total cases and death, and the total cases worldwide confirmed thus far is about 250,000. The total deaths, which is a much more reliable number, is about 10,000 people. So he's assuming that you will duplicate in California alone the same number of deaths that you've had worldwide for the last two months or so in the matter of two to four days. Um, off a base of two people, of 20 people. This is madness. Um, I cannot understand how you've done it. I have some very learned friends and I've argued with them. I put up a post that I estimated this at 500 deaths in the United States, 50,000 worldwide. Actually, as I think about it, those numbers can't be right because the ratio would have only 1% of the deaths in the United States. So keep the worldwide estimate, which is basically five times what the current death rate is, and make America say two to three percent of that particular total, which would be perfectly realistic, 50,000 deaths, uh, you'd get three, four thousand deaths at most coming out of this, the amount that Mr. Newsom thinks will come in California in two days. So clearly there's a huge stuff. Trust people. I do trust people. I trust myself to try to do these things and to work it out. I had a lot of experience as a lawyer dealing with you know, epidemiology and AIDS and similar situations. I speak to a lot of statisticians. Why it is that a governor who's best I can tell has zero intelligence about anything is putting forward (laughs) such an alarmist thing without any sense of the data is just beyond me. What happens is to understand the virus is it has to be a kind of a dynamic meeting. You look at all the previous pandemics or serious situations, and they never take the form which people say this one's going to take, which it kind of creeps up on you, and then it will burst. So the New York Times had a story by Nick Kristoff and a man named Thompson, which sort of predicted against 10 million cases nationwide in July, uh, based upon the current exposures of about, um, let's say, uh, 10 or 20,000 people in the United States. Whatever the number is, it's 10,000, I think. Uh, the flu every day used to give 10 times that amount to people. 
um, doing the last thing. And the number of deaths per day was far higher than the total deaths in the United States. What these things do is they come with a burst. There's adaptation, both of the virus and the people. And then what happens is they slowly peter out. And so let me just give you one statistic that is read completely incorrectly. Uh, it said, well, we now have much better reporting than we had before, and we see how grave it is. That's wrong. We know, in effect, the number of deaths that have happened to date. And the thing that you can do is you know that uh, anybody who was infected in the, before, say, two weeks ago, say March 6th, they've already in the tables. If there were a large number of infections at that particular time, and very few deaths reported up to date, what that means is that the virus is less powerful than you think it is. It also means when you start looking at the current reports, it's not the correct number. They're telling you the number of cases reported today. What you really need to know is the number of cases that occurred today. And the reporting will pick up cases that weren't reported earlier on, that occurred earlier on, and will therefore make the curve look steeper uh, than it actually is. And even if you do that, it's not as steep as one would want to think of it. So what you need to do is to figure out where the problem is and how to solve it. So uh, you look at the numbers, for example, and you, you quickly realize that uh, if you go to Washington State, one state in the United States, I mean, you know, you've got the 75 deaths there or more, uh, 76 now, 77. Well, uh, that's, you know, about 35% of the deaths in the United States, most relating to a single medical facility. Obviously, there are a fair number of deaths in New York. It's up to 40, a small number compared to the other kinds of deaths. Then you have to look further and ask, what kinds of people get this? How old are they? And if they're younger, do they have any comorbidities? That is, if you're somebody who's got lupus or diabetes or renal failure and so forth, you're at risk. So what you well, do is you tell people, self-select to stay out of trouble as a function of age and bodily condition, and you will get 90% of the effectiveness you get without having to wreck an economy, which will result in people being short on their meds, going without adequate food, having inadequate exercise, because this particular quarantine is not going to be risk-free. It's going to generate other kinds of risks from other kinds of deaths. So uh, this is a form of desperate stupidity uh, taken by a man who is so ignorant uh, that it's truly painful to believe that somebody that dumb can be in public power. Well, and, and, you know, we have and, the same guy in New York, the Blasio. What's in common with all these guys? They're all progressives. And what is it about progressives? They don't believe in individual choice. They don't believe in market mechanisms. They believe in their own infinite knowledge and their ability to, to guide, i.e. coerce, everybody else. And so this is a case of the dumb leading the smart. When we come back, I want to respond to what you just mentioned and uh, also discuss New York City Mayor de Palacio's call for nationalizing industries. We'll have more with Professor Richard Epstein when we return. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show we're talking to professor richard epstein i want to go back to uh, what you were saying professor about uh, so-called price gougers and the nationalization of industry i mean you're right de blasio taking the opportunity of uh 
uh, to talk about nationalizing industries within the last week. Uh, you know, the, the, the kid who uh, is arbitraging hand sanitizer, he's a price gouger and a problem. A mayor who's talking about nationalizing the hand sanitizer, to produ- hand sanitizer producer is not a problem. But I also want to go back to another governor, too. This is a governor who's uh, not been given a lot of coverage and he deserves it the same way Newsom does. And that's Tom Wolf in Pennsylvania, who shut down his state uh, almost a week ago. There's been one death reported in Pennsylvania, 112 cases, but it goes to this incentive structure, right, for politicians, uh, uh, Professor yeah, Epstein. And, and the incentive, but the incentive is no matter what you do, nothing can be an overreaction because I have these dire worst case scenario predictions. So everything I do will be seen as saving lives and nobody can disprove that I acted to save lives. Well, but you can do is you have this information of what happened in Wuhan. And you know what went on there. And basically you had a month of intense activities, caught everybody by surprise, and it never spread throughout the rest of China. So here you have, you know, if you just take the one province in China, um, it turns out if you start looking at the death rates, um, it's about, you know, 3,000 people died, um, uh, 3,100 people died in Hubei province in China. That's where Wuhan is. You then go further down on the scroll, when you look at Beijing, a city of, I don't know, 20 million people, perhaps, nine deaths. It's clear that this is highly localized. And so even if somebody as a governor wants to do that, he may have one or two hot spots in the state, but he's shutting down everything in a wild sense of over-precaution. I think there was a story in Atlantic today which said that half the uh, cases in the United States are concentrated in 10 counties. Right. Why on earth, therefore, do you want to shut down the entire system? Well, and, 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 and just and compare that, compare, compare Wuhan. So Wuhan is an area of 11 million people. They had 80,000-plus mm-hmm. cases because they tried to cover it up initially and weren't serious about yeah. treating it. So in Illinois, is a state of about 13 million people. We've got 422 cases and four deaths, and there's open discussion about going from shutting down bars and restaurants and schools to shutting down the whole state like California or Pennsylvania. But, uh, look, the governor is an incompetent. It's, it's really hard to sort of imagine how overreacted it is. The only thing that one hopes for is if you start looking at what's happened in Italy, the number of cases is very high. Uh, the number of deaths this morning is about 3,405 on my master chart. But I believe yesterday it was over 3,000, which suggests that the numbers are starting to decline in terms of new cases. And perhaps one will then realize that that's the way in which these curves go. That is, um, a logarithmic curve, as you think of a line at the 45-degree angle, is one that goes up much more slowly than the diagonal. And an exponential curve goes up much more rapidly. I'm predicting, based upon everything I know about this, that these curves are going to be logarithmic, meaning that they're not going to get faster as you go on. They're going to get slower. Everybody else is doing the panic, is treating them as exponential. They go up to this enormous level, and then everybody's dead. I mean, if you really were to take the geometric progression seriously and assume very rapid transmission with no adaptive behavior, um, by the time you got to July 1st, the entire universe would be publicized with this stuff. And that's what uh, Gavin Newsom is doing in California. I wanna... So it really is desperately implored to get somebody to calm down. And if you look at the front page of the New York Times or you look at the front page of the Wall Street Journal, which has nothing to do with the rest of the paper, um, what you do is you see this sort of basic hysteria taking over. Let me just read you a paragraph which I wrote in my paper, okay? This is from the flu from October to March. And there were about 36 to 51 million infections, right? And we're up at 10,000. Between 370 
600,000 and 670,000 hospitalizations that didn't overwhelm the system, and between 22,000 and 55,000 flu deaths. Well, that works out to about 230 to 320,000 new infections per day, and we're not near that. We're at four or 5,000, between 140 and 350 deaths per day. And then you could figure out what the mortality rate is of that. We have not had, in the United States, 350 deaths for the entire past time, and that was basically a bad day in the flu epidemic. So I cannot understand what's going on. I mean, if I sound pained, it's because I am. As I said, you know, I've heard people want to argue with me and, and say that, well, you could get a death toll of up to 20 or 25,000 in the United States, which I'm skeptical about because I'm assuming that the Chinese are lying. Let's just do that. And they probably had twice as many deaths in Wuhan as they announced. Still, you're not going to get four times that number of deaths in the United States given the way in which people have behaved. I mean, the difficulty we have now in the United States is that most of the population, say, that between ages of 5 and 50, which is at very low risk of death and even of serious illness, are taking wildly excessive precautions. The amount of people who self-quarantine themselves, the number of businesses that will fail because of these self-quarantine has gone way over the top relative to the data. Well, that's, and, I mean, that's, the that's, last study I read, somebody said this whole thing is going to be absolutely crazy. There's a man named Thomas Pale, P-U-E-Y-O, who says, you know, the halls are going to be racked with people in this kind of pain. Um, um, I cannot understand how you really think that this could happen. In the United States, 30% of the deaths have happened in one nursing home facility in Kirkland, Washington. I, I want to get your reaction to the other side of the equation that, I mean, the two are intertwined, but the economic uh, response from the government and particularly the Senate, oh, Repu the yeah. Senate Republican legislation yesterday with the cash payments up to a certain income threshold and the, and the, uh, the low interest secured loans to businesses. This is all crazy. Um, what they need to do is they have to unleash business so the stock market resume and people could start having their lives. If you try to figure out what's going to happen to the GDP in the United States, there's going to be a real loss of several trillion dollars in the next couple of weeks. And that's a real loss. What you're going to do with this stuff is you're going to make transfer payments. All transfer payments do is they take the loss from one person and they give it to another person, mm -hmm. which will not solve the problem. Stimuluses never work for that reason because there's always a hidden tax on the people who pay, which offsets the benefit for the people who start to receive. So what do you want to do? Well, let me mention two things that were very constructive that were told to me recently. One, somebody says, now we should allow telemedicine across state lines. We should have done that years ago. This entire system of state balkanization of a national market through licensure provisions means that if you're a world-class surgeon sitting in Kansas City, Missouri, you can't help save somebody who's on a farm somewhere in Kansas, uh, the countryside of Kansas, even though it's very close and you can do this extremely well. You get rid of that stuff, it costs you nothing, and it saves a huge amount. And if you had just more telemedicine, it would make things go away very, very rapidly. And then with bank loans. I mean, the level of security that you want to do to finance a bank, uh, the joke I gave when I last refinanced my bank, it's easier to rob the darn bank than it is to get a <laughs> renewal of a mortgage, which everybody knows, but everybody knows, is lower in risk than the mortgage that you already had because your security has gone up, the total amount of the borrowed has gone down, your payment record has been perfect, and they ignore all that stuff. And in my case, as required by government, they basically went into a complete frenzy because I could not find a partnership return which had somewhere between 20 and $50 on it as income uh, to complete my dossier so they didn't want to complete the loan. 
What you want to do in this business is to let banks lend on their own criteria instead of having these ridiculous government mandates put in place in 2008. He is Richard Epstein. He is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior uh, Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at New York University Law School, Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago, and I will tweet out his uh, piece at hoover.org. Professor Epstein, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Okay, Marta. Thank you. Take, take care. The more you'll know, this is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We were uh, just speaking with uh, Professor Richard Epstein. He's a hoot, isn't he? I mean, genius-level intellect, and he's very colorful, too, uh, giving us dissertations on the dumbest people on the planet, you know, the people in charge in America, uh, and also uh, the um, decisions being made by those same, both on the public health side as well as the economic side. Where do they come up with the idea, these, some of these ideas, you ask? Well, perhaps it's sort of the echo chamber in which they live, where politicians say something that reverberates around and then op-ed writers the places like the New York Times say the same thing or similar thing back that reverberates around and they come to consensus on that thing. Uh, my point is to get to Andrew Ross Sorkin in the New York Times. The only way to end the coronavirus financial panic, the only way, this is it. The government offering every American business and every self-employed American worker, a no interest bridge loan guaranteed for the duration of the crisis to be paid back over five year period. The only condition of the loan to businesses would be that companies continue to employ at least 90 percent of their workforce at the same wage that they did before the crisis. And it would be retroactive. So any workers who have been laid off in the past two weeks because of the crisis would be reinstated. Now, I agree with the desired end, which is keep Americans employed because it'll be cheaper on the front end than it will be to get them back to work, particularly in the recession that you've made deeper through your policy choices on the back end. However, I I just have to say, setting the proposal aside for a second, he ends the piece after that proposal with, hey, once we do that and get the economy back on its feet, that's the only way, of course. We have to have a serious, almost grave conversation in the country with our political and business leaders about financial responsibility and our policies. Over the past 20 years, only 20, we've lurched from bailouts to wars to rescue packages to bailouts again. And we never fill up our coffers during the best of times to pay for any of them. At some point, our debt will become the crisis that we can't end with more money. But we're not at that point, $23 trillion in debt and add another $100 trillion in unfunded liabilities. We're not at that point now. So we do this bridge loan deal. Then we have the serious conversation that we've been unwilling to have for, he says, 20 years. I'd say more like 100 years. What would Jacob Sullum say? He joins us now. Jacob Sullum, senior editor at Reason Magazine, Reason.com. Jacob, thanks for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me. You want to sign on to uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin's proposal? Yeah, I'm not sure about that particular proposal, but I do take seriously the idea that government policies are inflicting tremendous economic damage um, and that there is some responsibility if we, take, if we really believe that this is being done to protect the general public 
to compensate people in some way. I and mean, I'll give you a simple example of people. Uh, this is this is going back a bit, but people coming back uh, from China who are are not symptomatic. Um, we can't we at the time we couldn't confirm whether they were actually infected or not because they didn't have any tests. So that was a government engineered fiasco to begin with. But they're forced into uh, uh, quarantine for two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're forced to, to accept certain medical services uh, that they wouldn't otherwise have chosen. It turns out they actually weren't infected at all, and then they're saddled with bills for thousands of dollars. You know, that does not seem right to me because they're being forced to do something in the name of protecting the general public through no fault of their own, um, and so they, they should be indemnified against that sort of cost. So by the same principle, all of these people who are being Millions of people across the country are being thrown out of work as a result of how politicians are responding to this virus uh, do deserve some kind of compensation. I don't know if it's possible to compensate all of them or to fully compensate all of them, but they're owed something. So how you do that in a properly targeted way, I'm not sure. It's not sending checks to every single American, as some people have proposed, because a lot of those people uh, don't need that money, and they're probably not going to spend it if they're well off. uh, So it's not even going to have... The effect of stimulating the economy. Um, so when we talk about how the government should try to alleviate the effects of its own policies, <laughs> I, I think it, 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 there should be some kind of policy, but I think it needs to be properly targeted. Uh, when we come back with more with Jacob Solemn, senior editor at Reason.com, I want to talk to him about uh, his piece, that uh, his piece at Reason about the COVID control measures and whether or not we should have some civil libertarian concerns about what's being done and what's being proposed to be done. More with Jacob Solomon right after this. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're talking to Jacob Sullivan, senior editor at Reason Magazine, Reason.com. And uh, Jacob, uh, in piece that you wrote about uh, some of the government control measures uh, under the auspices of stopping the spread of the disease, social distance, social isolation, uh, shutting down businesses, shutting down human interaction in states like Pennsylvania and and San Francisco substantially. Uh, You're wondering aloud whether or not uh, some people should be raising constitutional concerns, particularly when you have law professors like Michael Dorff at Cornell arguing that uh, we need to suspend uh, the writ of habeas corpus in order to save the nation. Yes, I, that really uh, made me uh, drop my jaw uh, <laughs> um, uh, because what he's arguing is that um, it's, a, it's a national emergency. It doesn't really matter what the Constitution seems to say uh, because it's an emergency, and therefore we need to impose a, a nationwide lockdown. So this would be 
at least similar to what they've done in California now, where they've told everybody to remain at home in the entire state um, unless they have uh, essential reasons for, for venturing outside, um, maybe even more severe than that. Um, this is actually would be more severe than what China has done, uh, because China did yes. not impose that on the entire country, just on parts of the country, right? Um, so the first question is, can the federal government do that? Um, and uh, Michael Dorff says, well, usually when you impose restrictions like these, you need clear and convincing evidence that somebody poses a threat right, to the general public, the classic example being somebody who actually is infected and uh, can transmit the disease to other people. And if they refuse to uh, isolate themselves, then you can forcibly quarantine them. So that's, that's well established. He's saying, well, you can't prove that, obviously, about the entire state of California, for example, or the entire country. The vast majority of these people are not, not actually infected. Uh, but maybe we can loosen the rules a bit and say, you know, look at, a, look at the population as a whole and say, well, there's a risk that some of those people are going to spread the disease. Therefore, all of them can be confined. That's one thing. The other thing is, he says, what about legal challenges? That could be really mess up the works if you have people going to court saying, you know, the government doesn't have a right to do this. The violation of my rights. Um, so he suggests to avoid that problem, Congress should suspend the writ of habeas corpus, which it is supposed to only be able to do um, in the event of, of an invasion or an insurrection. Mm -hmm. So Dorf says, well, an invasion, hmm. The virus did come in from outside the country. That's kind of like an invasion, <laughs> right? So, so maybe you can make that argument, and, and, and he hopes the courts will defer. And, and, and sadly, it's hard to predict what the courts will do. They might very well defer, defer to that creative interpretation. So, you know, that, so that's the first issue. That's a civil liberties issue um, and a constitutional issue. But then you have the question of whether this makes sense as a policy. Are the, the benefits of the policy like, likely to outweigh the costs? And when you have uh, people predicting a huge economic impact uh, similar to what happened during the recession of 2008 to 2009, which cost the U.S. economy around $22 trillion, um, if, that is gonna, if we're going to see costs anything like that, uh, it is very hard to justify these policies, even assuming they're completely effective, which they won't be, and even assuming that you believe the worst-case scenario is uh, sketched out by the CDC. Um, oh. So I just did a back of the envelope calculation using the, the, the uh, value per life that is traditionally used when the government is imposing regulations, which is what's happening now, right? The government is imposing regulations that are supposed to protect public health. Um, so, so usually they, they use a figure around $8 million at the EPA, for example. Some people argue it should be somewhat higher, $9 million. So multiply that by the, by the largest conceivable number of deaths according to the worst-case scenario, and you still have a cost that is much greater than any possible benefit. So given, you know, that's the ceiling, and I don't think the worst-case scenario is plausible, um, but even if you do, it still can't be justified. So once you see that, you really have to wonder – um, given more plausible scenarios of how many people are likely to become infected and how many of those people will die, uh, whether any of this can possibly be justified. And by any of this, by the way, I mean really aggressive, coercive measures aimed at keeping people in, the home, in their homes, closing down businesses, that sort of thing. So I'm not talking about recommending social distancing, you know, avoid, avoid uh, crowds, uh, you know, limit your contact, that sort of thing. 
I'm talking about the, the, the really aggressive, uh, coercive measures. Yeah, like um, you're talking about like Japan, me, Jap, Japanese and you're talking about like Japanese internment camps or suspending habeas corpus during the Civil War, this kind of stuff. Yeah, well, look, uh, yeah, I'm not sure exactly what Michael Dorff has in mind when he says lock down the nation, but at least it's going to be similar to, to the policy that's been imposed in California, which says don't leave your home unless you have a really good reason that we approve of, right? Uh, so, uh, you know, can that, that be justified? Can it be just, you know, shutting down not quote unquote non-essential businesses be justified? Um, and it's very hard to, for me to see how it can be. Um, it, people may think, the politicians may think that they're erring on the side of caution because you have un, a lot of uncertainty, right? You have an uncertainty, first of all, about what the case fatality rate is. You, you see a, a wide range of estimates. I think the ultimately in the United States is going to prove to be much lower than the the rate that was initially suggested, which is over three percent, or even than the rate that the, the CDC is assuming, which is is a little bit less than one percent. It could be far less than one percent once you take into account all the people who are infected and either have mild symptoms or no symptoms at all. Well, it, right. So you only you can only calculate these numbers based on known cases, and that's that's a huge problem because you're getting. Uh, a very biased sample. So the case fatality rate is another big unknown. Right. It, 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 and, and plus you have the question of how far, you know, how many people will be infected, how far will the virus spread? And the CDC under its, you know, worst case scenario, it seems to be just assuming that uh, people will not change their behavior at all. This will just progress inexorably uh, until 65% of the population is infected. When we come back with Reason.com's Jacob Sullum, I want to uh, address President Trump's statement at his briefing on Thursday of the possibility the federal government would take an equity stake in businesses affected by the shutdowns and bailed out by the federal government. with Jacob Sullum, senior editor at Reason, Reason.com. And Jacob, I appreciate you raising the issue of the limits of federal power, or at least the demand for a discussion on the topic, um, the way that the Supreme Court uh, did uh, in the Youngstown Sheet case during the Truman administration, because you're hearing some things that should should really uh, worry people. Uh, and it's not just from Sandinistas like de Blasio. I mean, President Trump at his briefing yesterday uh, when he was asked about whether or not uh, he the he would be interested in the government taking a stake in companies that were effectively bailed out, an equity stake, he essentially said he was open to that, particularly companies that uh, did stock buybacks rather than open new factories in America. I mean, that's ri- that's ridiculous. That is a ridiculous position, and it just goes unremarked upon largely. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you have a situation where people are looking only at the worst case scenario, and then they're not even seriously thinking about that. Um, and they're saying, this is an emergency, all bets are off, the constraints that normally would, would apply don't apply. Yeah. Now, look, there is a, a, a legal history of saying, of saying something like that, of saying, you know, I gave the example of quarantining infected uh, individuals. Uh, but you're talking about something on a much more massive scale when you talk about restricting the movements of every American um, or every person in a given state um, and, and without any kind of serious justification other than you hope this will work. And you don't know, but honestly, you don't know whether it's going to work. And after the fact, you won't know whether it did work. Yeah. Right? So in China, for example, China is now saying uh, they're not reporting any new local infections. That just happened yesterday, the first time. So people who are advocates of really aggressive intervention will say, look, what China did, it was tremendously costly to their economy, but it looks like it worked. Or you could say uh, it would have, that would have happened anyway, that the epidemic would have petered out uh, even without that, the kind of dramatic uh, restrictions on, on the ability to travel that China imposed. And you can look at other countries like in, in Asia, like uh, South Korea, Singapore, Taiwan, Hong Kong, not a country, but a separate uh, you know, autonomous region, um, they ha seem to be having similar success at controlling the spread of the virus without the same kind of severe restrictions that China imposed. Uh, in South Korea in particular, their, their cases have, new cases have been declining since early this month. And what they are mainly focusing on is, first of all, widespread testing, which the United States has totally bungled. Um, and uh, figuring out who is infected, who who are their contacts, and tracing those contacts. But 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 um, but, but even so have, yeah, but even sorry. even getting that far down the road, I, I I appreciate that you're 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 pulling us back to say, wait a second, ends don't justify the means in this country. Uh, he is Jacob Sullum, senior editor at Reason Magazine, Reason.com. Jacob, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your insights. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Can we uh, remember how we got here? And I don't mean how we got here with respect to the uh, pandemic. I mean how we got here as America, the most powerful, the richest nation the world has ever seen. Can we remember how we got here? To help us do that, I hearken back to one of the most important essays, certainly of the last century, I'd say since America's founding. It's not one of our founding documents, but it might as well be. A little essay by a gentleman very few people have heard of, unfortunately, Leonard Reed, who is the founder of the Foundation for Economic Education, who in 1958 penned, or should I say penciled, an essay 
called iPencil. iPencil, simple though I appear to be, merit your wonder and awe, a claim I shall attempt to prove. In fact, if you can understand me, no, that's too much to ask of anyone. If you can become aware of the miraculousness which I symbolize, you can help save the freedom mankind is so unhappily losing. I have a profound lesson to teach, and I can teach this lesson better than can an automobile or an airplane or a mechanical dishwasher because, well, because I am so seemingly simple. And I'll let Nobel laureate Milton Friedman pick it up from there. Look at this lead pencil. There's not a single person in the world who could make this pencil. Remarkable statement? Not at all. The wood from which it's made, for all I know, comes from a tree that was cut down in the state of Washington. To cut down that tree, it took a saw. To make the saw, it took steel. To make the steel, it took iron ore. This black center, we call it lead, but it's really graphite, compressed graphite. I'm not sure where it comes from, but I think it comes from some mines in South America. This red top up here, the eraser, bit of rubber, probably comes from Malaya, where the rubber tree isn't even native. It was imported from South America by some businessmen with the help of the British government. This brass ferrule, I haven't the slightest idea where it came from, or the yellow paint, or the paint that made the black lines, or the glue that holds it together. Literally thousands of people cooperated to make this pencil. People who don't speak the same language, who practice different religions, who might hate one another if they ever met. When you go down to the store and buy this pencil, you are in effect trading a few minutes of your time for a few seconds of the time of all those thousands of people. What brought them together and induced them to cooperate to make this pencil? There was no commissar sending out offices from, sending out orders from some central office. It was a magic of the price system, the impersonal operation of prices that brought them together and got them to cooperate to make this pencil so that you could have it for a trifling sum. That is why the operation of the free market is so essential, not only to promote productive efficiency, but even more to foster harmony and peace among the peoples of the world. I go back to the journal editorial that was posted yesterday, rethinking the shutdown. No society can safeguard public health for long at the cost of its overall economic health. It seems to me there's a rebalancing in order in terms of the approach that we're taking to quell this pandemic. And this is not to minimize the public health threat it poses and that it's already exacted, but you don't destroy the economy to save yourself. In point of fact, you're expediting your own demise and your country's along with it. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by John Tamney, editor of Real Clear Markets, realclearmarkets.com, director of the Center for Economic Freedom at FreedomWorks, and author of The End of Work, Why Your Passion Can Become Your Job, uh, if you're allowed to pursue it, I suppose. John Tamney, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Before we get to the specific proposals and what the Senate Republicans have cobbled together, what's your view in terms of the, the balance that has been struck thus far between addressing the public health crisis and the economic crisis it has instigated? I think it's horrifying. Let's not forget that markets were pricing uh, coronavirus for quite some time. Uh, they knew it was coming to the United States, yet there was no market correction. Then politicians across the country, all in the name of 
for your own good, decided to shut down the most dynamic economy in the world. They turned it overnight into a command and control. In states like New Jersey, there are curfews at 5 o'clock. In Bethesda, Maryland, the rule is you must shut down your restaurant as of 5 o'clock. People are not free to work right now, and as, as you allude, uh, you cannot fight disease if you are if you are pursuing economic decline at the same time. The U.S., uh, it used to be that people died of all manner of things. It used to be that they were crippled of all manner of things. We were a poor country then. We are a rich country now, hence people don't die as readily. Yet politicians in their infinite wisdom are shutting down the very engine of wealth creation that enables a fight against all manner of diseases. It's staggering to think about. It would be funny if it weren't said. You could not make a movie that that, no one could ever have imagined politicians could be this obtuse. The uh, Senate Republicans' uh, approach, which is the you know twelve hundred a person for twenty four hundred a household with five hundred dollar kickers per child up to. Ninety-nine thousand if you're an individual, up to one hundred ninety-eight thousand if you're a household. Uh, way to get money in people's hands to maintain demand, in addition to some tax relief and reordering of lost carry-forwards. What's your view on what has been proposed? It's a massive non sequitur. I mean, there's so many ways to attack what is it, what is absurd. But the first thing is let's remember what were we saying on today is March twentieth. What were we saying on February twentieth? We weren't clamoring for any of this, and why weren't we? Because the U.S. economy was still largely free. So essentially, they should, politicians on the local, state, and national level shut down the economy, and then they say, okay, we've are, we're, we're wrecking your ability to improve your lives and everything. And so we will then, because we're so powerful, use money that we've taken from you from in the first place, taken from the private sector, and give it back to you. Have they lost their minds? If they hadn't intervened in the first place, there wouldn't be a call for anything like this. And let's add, there's no such thing as increasing demand. For government to hand out money, that's a sign that the growth already took place. And so what drives economic growth? Well, investment. I mean, of course, economists will tell you consumption drives economic growth. Oh, yeah, how does that work in Haiti? No, production drives economic growth. Production is a consequence of investment. So politicians have quite literally – and we know that the rich pay the vast majority of taxes. So they're taking money from those most capable of investing and handing it to people to consume, handing it to people who didn't need this money just a few weeks ago because at the time politicians were not stripping them of their ability to earn a living. You cannot make up how inept this is. Let's be very clear. There is nothing, nothing, nothing economic about what's happening. This is not a recession. This is the morphing of a dynamic economy into a command and control. The crisis is all political. It is not economic, and let's not insult the, the greatest economy on earth and pretend that, that, that capitalists caused this. No, this was caused by politicians who haven't a clue about how people prosper. Now, you do have some capitalists that are proposing something similar to the politicians. I mean, I saw Bill Ackman on CNBC, who's a billion uh, billionaire hedge fund manager, talk about a 30-day national shutdown. Now, And he's sort of borrowing from a proposal I've seen from a couple of people, which sounds a little bit sci-fi-ish, but the idea that we stop time for 30 days. In other words... Uh, You've probably heard this. Shut down everything for 30 days. Stop time so that nobody pays anything. Nobody does anything. You just shelter in place and you pretend that time has stood still for the next month. Uh, What do you say to Mr. Ackman in those? 
it's incredible that even the ignorant could believe something so ridiculous. Let's never forget that humans drive all progress. The greatest asset on earth, the greatest driver of, of cures, of prosperity, you name it, are human beings. And so we are quite literally being told by people, Republican and Democrat, capitalist, you know, billionaires and non-billionaires, that the very people who drive all progress are a menace to one another and must be separated from one another rather than producing and cooperating alongside one another until politicians deem it fit for them to once again be free to work and produce alongside one another. Yes, Bill Ackman is a billionaire, but what a dangerous, dangerous thinker, and, 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 and how tragic there are people. I mean, only in a rich country could the response to this be so ridiculous. Could we have done this 50 years ago? Oh, God, no. We're only able to do this now because affluent people who have no clue about the everyday yearnings and needs of the typical American are basically saying, oh, we've got savings, so we will shut down the economy and wreck the, the, the economic lives of all sorts of people who don't have what they have. You can always count on John Tamney to put a flag down. That's why we love him. John Tamney, editor of RealClearMarkets.com, director of the Center for Economic Freedom at FreedomWorks, and author of The End of Work, Why Your Passion Can Become Your Job. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. President Trump yesterday in his... uh, briefing with his coronavirus task force talked about uh, promising antiviral treatments for coronavirus, two drugs specifically. Clinical trials are already underway for many new therapies, and we're working on scaling these to allow many more Americans to access different drugs that have shown really good promise. We've had some un- really good promise. Uh, the two are an anti-malarial drug that's been around for 70 years, chloroquine. The other is a drug developed by Gilead called remdesivir, which was used apparently effectively, like effectively as in saving the lives of two gentlemen in Washington state who were very sick due to the coronavirus. Dr. Steve Hahn President Trump's FDA director spoke on the topic. Chloroquine, which is an anti-malarial drug, it's already approved, as the president said, for the treatment of malaria as well as an arthritis condition. That's a drug that the president has directed us to take a closer look at as to whether an expanded use approach to that could be done to actually see if that benefits patients. And again, we want to do that in the setting of a clinical trial. And Gilead followed up in a statement after that press conference saying it's essentially the same thing. They don't have approval. This was used in compassionate use cases in Washington state. So they're still working through the clinical trial process with remdesivir as well. For more on uh, the whole topic of the public health response, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Mark Bruce, who's an emergency room physician and the ambassador to both Belize and Canada for the American College of Emergency Physicians. Dr. Bruce, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good to be with you. How did you receive uh, the uh, information from the the, uh, 
you know, the collective group yesterday about those two potential antiviral therapies? Well, it's obviously good news. I mean, we await further information. I mean, the whole idea behind medical science is data-driven. And so to make good decisions, both in terms of what should we do about this, but also how should we use this, at what dosage, who gets it, over what period of time, all those types of things, contraindications, are there patients that shouldn't receive this, is really data-driven. And so that's the idea behind going ahead and doing these substantial clinical studies to kind of get that kind of data. We do know that remdesivir in particular was used in MERS uh, successfully. So, you know, these are both RNA viruses. This is an AIDS drug. They are called protease inhibitors. And what that, that 50 cent word means is that it keeps the RNA virus, which is what COVID-19 is, from replicating itself. It, it really stops the replication that creates the tremendous viral loads that people shed and can so easily transmit. The Italy situation, we 99% of those who died had at least one, most had more than one underlying condition. Three quarters had high blood pressure. A third had heart disease. A third had diabetes. And I'm not saying, you know, oh, those people don't matter. Their lives don't matter. I'm not saying that. But I am suggesting that the lethality rate, especially if some of the other conjecture about the number of people who are asymptomatic that are walking around with it, may be dramatically lower than what has otherwise been widely reported And so you have to consider that in terms of the economic damage you're doing with the response that has been pursued in certain states and even at the federal level to some extent. Yes, it does. But I would tell you this, when you're walking around and you're in stores, even maintaining appropriate social distancing or wherever you are, do you know the medical history of the person that you're walking by? No, right. None of us do. So we don't know if they're diabetic. We don't know if they're on an antihypertensive medication. Because of that, we need to go out of our way to protect. We know who the vulnerable population is here. And that vulnerable population is just what you mentioned. It's, it's that over 60 population. It's patients even under 60 that have these chronic diseases. Those are the ones that are at risk. But even without any, there is this subset of people that die from this that have none of that. It's a small percentage. But again, that's something that we really don't understand exactly why that occurs, why this not at risk population can become very, very ill with this. From your perspective and from the uh, the doctors you talk to, how much uh, of a uh, dearth of supplies with respect to the protective gear that you want healthcare workers to uh, be donning when they treat uh, the infected? How, how much of an issue is that right now system wide to your sort of best guesstimate? Uh, yeah, it's still a big problem. It's, it's a very personal issue for me because one of my colleagues is currently quarantined mm. because they had an unmasked exposure and had some risk in terms of some chronic disease too. So uh, it left us scrambling to cover those shifts that that colleague was scheduled for. And so we're still kind of uh, down uh, uh, at least one staff member at this point in time. So it, it creates, uh, you know, Again, we're trying to not only protect ourselves, but protect our patients, too, whenever we, we uh, encounter those patients that have symptoms that are certainly worthy of COVID testing. Going back to the antiviral therapies, the prospective ones, whether it's from Desivir or whether it's the anti-malarial drug, let's say those came online tomorrow and they were as effective generally with infected patients as they have been previously in smaller samples. 
How would that change what you would say the appropriate response should be by governments? I would think that they would fast track all those mechanisms by which those drugs are manufactured and distributed. Uh, I, I think that the changes that we see in the FDA and the whole chain of command up to the president I think have been totally appropriate and have uh, resulted in uh, hopefully we'll see this flattening of the curve that Dr. Fauci uh, has recommended and and is very hopeful of by these. These are draconian measures. Um, Just going back to the antiviral treatments, because, you know, that's not a cure. It's a treatment. But uh, so people could still get infected, still get sick, still need to be treated. This could roll on for months. I mean, actually, even in some of those southeastern Asian countries that have effectively combated it to this point with popular some foreign of some natives returning back from overseas travel. Now they're worried about sort of a second round and a third round, which is not unusual in these sort of viral outbreaks. Um, So my 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 uh, question to you, though, would be, would it be your recommendation to public health officials, to politicians to say you can remove you can stop the quarantines, you can stop the shutdowns, maybe still keep the social distancing culturally. But as long as we have an effective treatment, then we can be less concerned about the lethality of it and we can start to quickly move back to normal life. You know what I'm saying? Is that, is that a pathway back and that we would recommend? And now that's an appropriate risk that people can take. Yeah, I think so. And, and that in combination with vaccine development, that's going to help with kind of future waves of this. Uh, we have seen all viruses are going to morph. Uh, and that's why there's the, you know, we get a, a flu vaccine every year. Uh, we right. consider it, a vaccine is not a panacea. Right. We consider a, a pretty good vaccine is when it's, it's anywhere between 40 to 50 percent effective for influenza. So we, I would anticipate that a similar vaccine is going to be developed here. I think it will be sooner than a year and a half. Uh, but I, I, I wouldn't be surprised because I know that there's uh, multiple vaccine developers that have used existing platforms to be able to design and start manufacturing and testing a vaccine now. But again, you need to know, gee, is this product actually going to work before you start giving it to large numbers of people? He is Dr. Mark Bruce, emergency room physician and the ambassador to both Belize and Canada for the American College of Emergency Physicians. Dr. Bruce, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. You're welcome, Dan. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Well, today at uh, President Trump's coronavirus task force briefing with the D.C. press corps, there were some testy moments. President Trump certainly isn't appreciative of some of the fatalism and sensationalism coming in the form of leading questions from the press corps. There were a couple of really testy moments where the president called out members of the D.C. press corps engaged in uh, what he termed sensationalism. Uh, of course, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, not a member of the press corps, member of the task force, uh, he had a comment on the decision by New York Governor Andrew Cuomo to follow California Governor Gavin Newsom and Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf in uh, ordering a shelter in place for all non-essential workers in the state of New York. This is what Dr. Fauci, 
a New Yorker himself had to say. The second thing I think is really important is what happened in New York today, what Governor Cuomo mentioned about an hour ago, some rather strong uh, uh, issues that have been addressed with his recommendations, not recommendations, essentially orders. Now, we have a group of, of recommendations and guidelines that are applicable to the entire country. You know them. We've been over them. Yet there are places, regions, states, cities in this country that are being stressed much, much more than the country as a whole. Clearly, one of them was Washington. Another one was California. Governor Newsom made some very important, difficult decisions. Today, Governor Cuomo did the same thing. And I want to say I strongly support what he's doing. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Maureen Callahan, who is a columnist with The New York Post. Maureen, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's interesting, Dr. Fauci voicing support for Governor Cuomo. Uh, I mean, it's nice to have solidarity among New Yorkers and all that jazz. But uh, if he believes that uh, shelter-in-place orders are appropriate for New York, and they sort of seem to indicate uh, appropriate for California, then it's interesting that uh, the task force today said they're not currently considering a nationwide lockdown or issuing a guideline for lockdown. So. Well, are you confused by that, or is it me? Um, I'm I'm sort of more focused on you know this this crisis is so dynamic and it seems to change from minute to minute. Here in New York, our mayor and our government have been locked in a battle over whether to uh, execute a, a shelter-in-place order, uh, with our mayor being for it and our governor being resistant to it. Um, I mean, it seems that it's 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 only a matter of time before that happens. Um, well, it, yeah, I mean, it has happened, right? I mean, it's essentially happened with respect to uh, uh, Cuomo uh, making the move. I mean, it was from 50 percent and then 75 percent needed shelter in place. And today it's been like over 72 hours. He's uh, he's, uh, you know, gone the other 25 percent. Yeah, I mean, but I think that he's. If I'm, if I'm not correct, I, I, I have not watched the news this morning. I, I needed a mental health break. Yeah, but, understood. Uh, that, that 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 executive order to to shelter in place, which essentially locks the city down. Uh, I, I don't think has he issued that yet. Yes, that's the state. Oh, he did. The state okay. Cuomo did. Yes. The yeah, state. that's what Fauci Great. was talking about when he said he was supportive of what Andrew Cuomo uh, did. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 th- I think it was. It, it, that sort of, in a weird way, is, is a relief to many New Yorkers. I, the city really began shutting itself down mid last week. Um, so that that goes to just how very seriously New Yorkers are taking this. Um, however, there is a small subset of New Yorkers uh, that I wrote about in 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 my column today who uh, feel the rules do not perhaps apply to them. Um, and it has sort of led to this all-out class warfare uh, in in the Hamptons. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, it's and and I want to pick that up when we come back because there's there's nothing like uh, those who um, are uh, the elites uh, and the wealthy um, who um, like to be socialists uh, for others from a distance. 
uh, actually having to uh, confront those individuals you wrote about. You, you wrote about very interesting, and it really the dynamic of the Hamptons actually is somewhat instructive of what might uh, spread around the country between those who can survive a couple weeks, a month, uh, with uh, an economy locked down, and uh, those who whose lives will be altered for the foreseeable future uh, with the pursuit of these policies. I want to pick that up with New York Post columnist Maureen Callahan right after this. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with Marie Callahan. She is a columnist in the New York Post, and um, uh, as we uh, mentioned before the break, a provocative piece because of the provocations that uh, working people feel have been inflicted upon them by the Hampton elites. There's not a vegetable to be found in this town right now, said, says one resident of, the, of Springs, a working class pocket of East Hampton. It's these elitist people who think they don't have to follow the rules. That's from Maureen Callahan's column. Uh, give us a handle on um, that um, interplay between working people and the landed aristocracy in the Hamptons, Marine. I mean, I'll try to do it briefly, but in a nutshell, last weekend, as panic was rising in the city about the spread of COVID-19, those who have the resources fled from Manhattan out to the Hamptons. Two of those people knowingly came with the virus and did not tell anyone until they got here. They had packed up their SUVs and there were posts on social media where they were showing off all the food that they had packed up, like fleets of SUVs per family. Then they drove out here, shredded the local grocery stores, which, by the way, and I think a lot of people don't know this unless you are out here, there are no big grocery stores out here. There's no Whole Foods. There's no Fresh Direct. There's no door-to-door food delivery. Sure, that would be so garish, what, right? Right, and it's a way of keeping people out. There, There's a limited amount of food supply in the Hamptons in the off-season. It's a severely reduced population of year-rounders, locals. These are working-class people. There is poverty out here, which is something you never see represented. Not only did the wealthy come and and, and trust me, these shelves are stripped bare. Mm-hmm. Old people cannot find any food. They then went to the PC Richards in Southampton and have been panic buying extra freezers, hoard all this food. And after they did that, in covering town amidst this panic, they went out to the bars and the restaurants in town and sort of acting as though summertime came early. And they went to the cycles and the flywheels and went to the clothing stores and they were having a grand time it has led to the resentments that fester between the working class and the elite have now sprung to the surface because 
the year-rounders out here feel that the elites are putting their own lives in danger. There's one tiny hospital out here, one. It's got 125 beds. It's got eight ICU beds. That is it. The firehouses out here, two ambulances, maybe three per. Firefighters all volunteer. Firefighters and paramedics do not sleep in those firehouses when they're on shifts. They all work from home. Mm-hmm. So there's a significant strain that this influx is putting on these communities. I, lo- I love uh, what uh, you uh, recount in your com- uh, a comment from one East Hamptonite who said, I saw one guy walk out of a grocery store with a cart full of carrots, just carrots. Another cart was full of bottles of water and orange antimicrobial dish soap. If you're a ridiculous person in general, I guess your ridiculousness is amplified by something like this. <laughs> I just love that. It's, it's I love so that true. comment. I mean, because there is no shortage of ridiculousness on display out here in normal circumstances. You know, ridiculous is the normal for, for the Hamptons. And so much of the coverage sort of tends to be, oh, look at these crazy eccentric rich people and all the things they'll spend their money on and all the stupid ways they'll pass their time. And I think right now there's been kind of a level where it's gone from, it's not funny anymore. This one woman who, who is so upset people out here who a wealthy woman from Manhattan tested positive for COVID-19, called Southampton Hospital and said, I am on my way. I need to be treated by you. Was told by the hospital, no, stay in place. Quarantine yourself. Do not come here. Knowingly got on public transportation, didn't even drive her own car Mm. where she would have been isolated. Showed up at the hospital. And said, treat me. And, you know, she's sitting in the ER infecting God knows how many other people. And it's that sort of level of, you know, that, that entitlement, that sense of, well, the rules don't apply to me. And you can tell me no, but I don't, I don't ever hear no. Uh, th- that has so incensed people out here. You knew who these people were. And then in times of crisis, they make they, they, the veneer gets stripped off and then they confirm what you sort of knew to be true. And it seems like some of that's happening with these Champagne socialists who pay a lot of lip service to the working man and working women, working woman when they're uh, uh, servicing a cocktail party. And uh, when it comes to, you know, their interest, though, it's uh, you, you people get out of my way. I'm first in line. Right. Like I'll knock over like elderly and small children <laughs> right. to get my food. And trust exactly. me, like I get my microbial soap. Resource. Yeah. 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 Generally speaking, even beyond the, the champagne socialists in the Hamptons, you're saying people uh, descending into uh, Lord of the Flies rather than the spirit of picking up your fellow man that you saw in 9-11. Exactly. That's what you're saying. That's that's fascinating and troubling. And it's interesting, too, because it actually contrasts to Peggy Noonan, who was obviously an elite, but in her column in the Wall Street Journal today, she's not feeling well. She had to go through all of the machinations to finally get tested for the virus after uh, several calls and getting just basically queuing up like anybody else. And then so she talked about that in her column, wrote about in her column, which I, I really appreciate. And of course, um, I tweeted out that I hope she feels better, too, gets well soon. But it's just interesting because it's nice to see someone like that who has that standing recount a story of that gives you a sense of what everyday people are going through because she she was an everyday person when it came to getting the test after she fell ill. And of course, we hope she, like everybody else, gets better. But, you know, that's sort of the the omega to the alpha that you're describing in the Hamptons and elsewhere. Well, yes. And, you know, there's this backlash that's going on as well, where you're seeing people questioning and finally they're questioning our, our elected officials. Why is it that asymptomatic celebrities and athletes can get such quick and easy access to these tests? 
Right. When the average person who may be displaying two out of three symptoms, you know, my little niece, one of them, are told to just stay home and wait it out. They can't get tests. You know, and I think we're beginning to see really that this the Hamptons is a, is a sort of micro example, but the the, the the fissure really between the haves and the have nots and people really our, our officials really need to answer for why it is that uh, the the rich and famous and connected are are easily getting tested uh, while the the average working Joe is is not. Yeah, the quality of care uh, that is available in our healthcare system, I mean, that, that that can be gamed like so many of the other systems, which is why there's so much skepticism of these in- systems that where there is significant government intervention, even if they're not completely government run. She is Maureen Callahan. She's a columnist for the New York Post. Check out her piece. We should blow up the bridges <laughs> about uh, what's going on in the Hamptons. That's good stuff. Uh, Maureen, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Take care. Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Bud Light presents Real Men of Genius. And women. And uh, this is going to become a a recurring segment uh, in the crisis because you see so many examples of American ingenuity uh, in service to others, too, uh, which is uplifting in uh, anxious times. Give me a few examples of this. uh, A distillery in Chicago, Cobell Distillery in the Ravenswood neighborhood in Chicago, which is where uh, former Chicago mayor Tiny Dancer lives, known uh, to his friends as Rahm Emanuel. Cobell Distillery is going to start producing hand sanitizer rather than whiskey. Like in any other war effort, people are asked to step up, and right now hand sanitizer is needed a lot more than whiskey. I don't know, maybe it's close, pretty equal. That's the co-founder of the distillery, uh, Sonet Hart, saying so. Uh, But it is inspired. They're not making uh, hand sanitizer for public use, consumer use. They're going to be given to Chicago hospitals, retirement homes, and daycares, firefighters, police officers, EMTs, people on the front lines dealing with this, and that's who they want to serve. Makes perfect sense. Uh, Interestingly, there is a recipe published by the World Health Organization for hand sanitizer that the distillers are going to go off of, and it will produce an alcohol-based hand rub, uh, which is, according to WHO, the only known means for rapidly and effectively inactivating a wide array of potentially harmful microorganisms on the hands. So that's Covell Distillery. Sticking in Chicago in the suburbs, uh, marketing genius here with a bars and restaurants shut down statewide other than for drive through or takeout. A uh, displaying restaurant called the Beacon Tap, this is in suburban Chicago, giving out a free roll of toilet paper with every delivery or takeout order. Because, you know, toilet paper is like uh, trafficking in plutonium in terms of value uh, these days uh, with the irrational run on toilet paper. All right, that's a good one. Here's another one. This is perhaps a little bit more heartwarming than the toilet paper. A little bit it's creative, though. Got to give it there. A uh, junior high school uh, girl uh, in Japan is using her savings to buy the materials to craft 612 masks to help out the elderly, orphans, and others facing mask shortages due to the spread of the coronavirus. 
this 13-year-old girl is spending 80,000 yen, which is roughly $700 American, to put together these masks, saying that I hope these masks will be used by as many people as possible. Each mask is packed individually with the message, wash your hands and gargle diligently. I'm not that good at sewing, but I tried hard to make them as I want to help people. That's nice. Not all Lord of the Flies everywhere among everybody. And then uh, this, if you're uh, under a shelter-in-place order that's particularly draconian, you can't even go out to walk your dog, as apparently you know, one man in Cyprus either can't or doesn't want to, too lazy. This could be something that survives the coronavirus, too. He's using a drone to walk his dog while he's on lockdown due to, to the pandemic. He posted this video, uh, captioned it, Fifth Day Quarantine, encouraging people to stay home, but to, you know, care for your dog, make sure he goes out. I mean, I guess you could also put puppy pads down in your in your house, but I suspect those are probably running short as well. But uh, the picture and the video is priceless. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Things are getting a little testy, even among fellow travelers on the left. Uh, Katie Turr, she's one of the fungible hosts on MSNBC. She uh, had Andy Slavitt, a former Obama administration health official, and Craig Fugati, who is a former head of FEMA under President Obama, so two Obama-era officials on the show to talk about uh, the federal response and to propagate Chinese propaganda. And then this happened. We have masks. We have a lot of these things. Guess where they are? They're sitting in the supply chain. People are profiteering off of them or they're going to places where people are hoarding them. Now, that happens in a crisis. It's only because it's only by someone looking through the entire system and seeing where those needs are that you can say, stop hoarding them all in Texas. We need them in New York right now while we build manufacturing capability and put them in Texas. So what your other guest is suggesting here is not helpful. We need a great partnership between the federal and state government. People? Uh, Craig, you want to sit down and respond to this? Nope, he's uh, left the building. I guess Craig has left. Fugati went full Elvis. Um, he's gone. They later apologized to one another on Twitter, which was nice. But uh, the disagreement was a Slavit getting uh, hysterical about the federal response while Fugati, actually an expert, you know, FEMA director, was saying, you know, state and local is important, too, which this is this running argument about all things, all roads must travel through Washington, D.C., rather than a recognition of how our Federalist representative republic works. So the misreporting in this area, too. President Trump says, governors, you're on your own. Not what he said. He said, said, here's the things that we're going to do and here's how we're going to help. And, of course, governors like Cuomo and Newsom have backed up what President Trump has said. But that's underreported by those Chinese propaganda fronts like MSNBC. It's not what he said. He said going to back them. But if you have access at the local level, you're not helpless. You big state governors and governors generally you're not helpless. If you have access to supplies, if you have other avenues to obtain needed supplies, then use them. 
And that's reported as governors, you're on your own. It's just really um, it's and it's delegitimizing and it's delegitimizing. But it is remarkable, uh, again, to see how little concern the D.C. press corps has for their legitimacy, because for them, all roads lead to November and the de-election of President Trump, not dealing, not providing value added information to the public about this virus and the public health and economic health implications, as we were discussing earlier with Selena Zito. Now we pick up that discussion with John Nolte, who's editor-at-large at Breitbart. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for asking me on. Uh, put, yeah, of course. Uh, you put together a nice uh, compendium, too, of uh, a myriad examples of uh, press reporting of the kind that we were just talking about, things that they know are not true, and uh, it just doesn't matter, uh, as well as their obsessions for things that very few people care about other than them, which is, uh, for example, the terminology used to reference the virus. Yeah, we have a very unserious media during very serious times. And you're you're right. That's a great word you're using. They continue to delegitimize themselves. If you compare the media coverage to Trump's approval ratings, which are now in the 50s, in at least three polls for his handling of this, you can see that the, the media is, re, is not reporting the news. They're not reflecting what's happening. Uh, they're just reflecting their own neuroses. And the lies that they are telling, and these are deliberate lies, uh, to hurt, to undermine, and de- I, 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 I'll give you a good example. On CNN a couple of days ago, Jake Tapper, who is one of the great serial liars in the media, was angry. He was talking with Dr. Sanjay Gupta. And Sanjay Gupta went on the Colbert show to lie about Trump not accepting those WHO tests, right. which we now know was a lie. Right. So, so Sanjay Gupta and Jake Tapper are, are on CNN, and they're wringing their hands because nobody in San Francisco is honoring the, 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 uh, the quarantine. They're, they're out walking around, and Jake Tapper's using the word enraged. Why aren't they listening to the president? And I'm thinking, you, you two idiots just spent four years turning him into President Hitler. You just spent four years telling us he was a Russian spy and a Nazi and a liar and a Klansman. Why would a bunch of leftists in, in San Francisco trust him? No, it's Why would right. they trust him now? But it, this is it, this is perfect too, right? It, it's a, another example. One of my favorite this week. I was just talking about our federalist system. Uh, Trump uh, is a dictator or a wannabe dictator for three years. Then during the pandemic, Trump is not acting enough like a dictator. Yeah, it, it, he and that's and that's what they want to do to him. And this is they're pretending we're still in 2016. We're not in 2016 anymore. We are in a world where we don't know what the world's going to look like a week from now. And they still want to pretend it's 2016 where they can play their little game where Trump can do nothing right and Joe Biden can do nothing wrong. And I just want to just try to imagine the number of infected in this country, the number of dead in this country under President Joe Biden, who would not have closed our borders, who would have allowed thousands of people from China to seed, to seed coronavirus all throughout our country. But the media is they are stuck in a bubble and they are going to implode. They're going to self-destruct. And I 
and, and they have to be looking at these approval numbers. Trump at 56, 58 percent, uh, and just just be, they're dumbfounded. How can this be true? We're pounding this guy 24 seven. Mm. Well, that's because no one's listening to you anymore. Uh, I wanted to uh, get your reaction to uh, this controversy surrounding two Republican senators, Kelly Loeffler of Georgia and Richard Burr in North Carolina, uh, doing um, uh, a lot of market maneuvers after briefings uh, about coronavirus, uh, moving a lot of money, particularly for uh, for Richard Burr from North Carolina, who is not a wealthy person the way that Loeffler is, uh, and also um, – talked about what he knew about the coronavirus, at least per a briefing at a a fundraiser towards the end of end of uh, February and then moved a large uh, position in the stock market over multiple transactions, particularly relative to his net worth. Now, there is uh, technically laws against insider trading against senators. Loeffler, I think, has an important point to distinguish the two cases, then get your reaction. Uh, Her uh, portfolio is managed by a third party that makes independent decisions, not uh, excluding her as well as her husband, essentially put, you know, putting assets in trust is effectively what that is. So that's different. Burr has not claimed that that's the case. He's essentially uh, conceded the point that he directed these transactions. And if he did, then that's a real problem. At, At minimum, it looks like the appearance of a conflict of interest. And, you know, you can't unknow or unhear what you heard and he he had this briefing. He made these statements. He made those transactions. Uh, to me, at first blush, Berg's got a problem. Yeah, he's he's my senator. Uh, we have a Democrat governor, so if he resigns, we're going to get a Democrat senator. And if this is all true, he needs to resign. But I just but I like the caution in your voice, and I want to amplify that. You know, during times like these, people aim. People shoot without aiming a lot, and we need to. He deserves due process. We should hear him out. Same with the other senators. Feinstein also moved some money. She says she has a blind trust. If that's the case, fine. But we need to know that they weren't talking to the blind trust. They weren't wink, wink, nod, nodding. Because if you're if you're profiting off something like this and you're a senator, you need to go to prison. But we need there needs to be due process here. Yeah. Need, everybody deserves a fair a fair hearing. But. If he's guilty, if, if Burr did this, I, I don't care if he gets replaced by a Democrat. He's got to go. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I agree. So, I mean, yeah, let it play out. I mean, he basically his response this morning on Twitter was, you know, this is a, a like a media hit job. Well, that's all well and good. But the question still stands. Did you direct these transactions after you had those briefings that only you know, the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee would get. Right. And, and, and so, you know, whether you say it informed those decisions or not, it was on point. So you're sort of in a corner if there's not an alternative explanation. And it's, and it's laughable for an ever-Trump senator to, to try and hide behind media hit job as though we're all going to go, oh, yeah, the media is evil. I mean, this guy has been a thorn in the side of decency for the last three years, pushing the Russia collusion hoax, pushing all of this nonsense against Trump. And now he's going to try a Trumpian move and Trump would never would have done this. John Nolte, editor at large at Breitbart. John, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate- oh, by the way, uh, Tom Wolf, governor of Pennsylvania. I think I said uh, Dick Wolf, who is the uh, creator of Law and Order. Uh, yeah, so that's, that distinguishes <laughs> the two. Uh, John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Have a good weekend. Good 
seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show with uh, nearly one in five Americans under shelter-in-place orders, California, New York, uh, along with Pennsylvania, probably puts it more than uh, one in five Americans, more than 20%. We do, as Peggy Noonan writes in the Wall Street Journal, need time to absorb all of this. Right now at the stage in the drama, she writes, most of the heroes are also busy absorbing, all the heroes being the frontline workers, obviously healthcare workers, but also supply chain workers, truckers, and as I mentioned yesterday, the real men and women of genius, the uh, shelf stockers and supermarkets and the like, and those uh, restaurateurs who are providing takeout or, uh, or drive-through services. Most of the heroes also busy absorbing. We, all of us every day trying to absorb the new reality, give it time to settle. Yeah, uh, anxious times. She uh, adds, a general attitude for difficult times, trust in God first and always talk to him. Every time in America's trouble, I remember Adam Smith's words. He wrote, there's a great deal of ruin in a nation. And she writes, especially a very great and prosperous one with a brilliant system and a creative citizenry. She also notes here, uh, just in case you missed her column, that uh, she has not been feeling well. And she uh, finally, after um, some effort, got in to get uh, tested and is awaiting her test. So we uh, send our regards to Peggy Noonan at the Wall Street Journal and pray that she'll be okay, feeling better very soon. But yeah, I mean, with uh, in addition to thinking about you doing your part, whatever it is, if you're still working, if you're one of those frontline employees, or if you're not through no fault or desire of your own, but you're doing your part to distance yourself socially and otherwise follow all the sensible protocols. Thinking about what the world is going to look like when we get through this, which of course we will, and thinking in two areas. Uh, how about this, dinner and a movie? Will dinner and a movie ever mean the same thing as it meant before coronavirus? I mean, it's been changing anyway, uh, mostly because of the movie side, not so much the dinner side. In fact, they've sort of been going in the opposite direction thanks to streaming services, right? A good uh, op-ed in uh, Washington Post, of all places. Well, this is on entertainment, not so good on the politics. Alyssa Rosenberg writing about uh, the movie culture and how different it may look on the other side of this virus. Even before the outbreak, the entertainment industry was in flux, she writes. China's growing box office power forced movie studios to balance U.S. values with the demands of Chinese censors. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, remember the Red Dawn casting uh, the uh, bad guys as North Koreans? Had to switch that out, the remake of Red Dawn. The remake of Top Gun uh, had to change around some of the patches on Tom Cruise's leather jacket. Many other examples. Not to mention the genuflecting before the Chinese that... Uh, that Hollywood does generally, that the NBA was doing generally. No question about that. Uh, also, the uh, delays you see, blockbusters uh, such as the forthcoming James Bond film No Time to Die, Disney's live-action adaptation of Mulan, the latest installment in the uh, Fast and Furious franchise, all postponed because they don't want to lose the expected returns from the Chinese market. These uh, temporary adjustments to the release calendar and moviegoers' behavior may have not-so-temporary consequences, Ms. Rosenberg writes. Studios that have lots of cash on hand or are part of larger conglomerates may soldier on. Others will not. That's a story that we'll talk about across industry. Those studios that do survive will face difficult choices about how many movies they can put into production and whether to keep swinging for the fences with blockbusters or committing 
to making smaller movies that are less risky, but also less remunerative. Those decisions will reverberate for years to come. She suggests, you know, they've been betting Hollywood on big blockbusters with international distribution to make up for some of the uh, less expensive films that uh, don't perform as well at the box office. That's been the essentially the revenue model. But um, change happened this week. Universal broke an industry taboo this past Monday when it announced it would make some movies available for $20 streaming rentals, even while they play in the theaters. <laughs> what theaters, at least that are open. And maybe what theaters is the question after this. That's the point we're getting to. Sony, also hoping to pick up viewers and amid social distancing, plans to release the Vin Diesel film Bloodshot on demand next week. In an age of relatively inexpensive and extremely high-quality flat-screen TVs and home audio equipment, this option had been an anathema to the film industry because it fears making theaters obsolete. If Universal and Sony are wrong that doing this will not further uh, hasten the obsolescence of theaters, then, um, well, it'll be the opposite, won't it? Washington-area moviegoers were stunned last week when, without warning, AMC shuttered the historic Uptown Theater in Cleveland Park. In boom times, a smaller chain like Landmark might have come to the rescue. Uh, now, those companies are more likely to protect theaters they already own and operate. And so uh, theaters like Uptown in D.C. face even longer odds. Uh, she concludes, COVID-19 won't be the end of movies, but as we seek social distance, movies allow us to escape and give us a measure of the connection we can't experience in person. Instead, the risk is that the pandemic will change the kinds of movies we see, t- we get to see, blockbuster versus the uh, smaller movies, less risk, less return, and whether we can watch them in a crowd, escaping together through a bright screen to other worlds. We have to escape uh, <laughs> with some distance from our compadres. So the end of dinner in a movie. On the movie side, on the dinner side, probably not, but um, the nature of your options may change significantly. Good piece uh, out, of, out of Yahoo Finance charting the growth over the last uh, almost two decades for the top 500 dining chains in the United States. They collectively have grown about 30 percent from 03 to 18, while U.S. population has grown just a little over 10 percent. So significantly, you know, three xing population growth. So now with the recession looming and a lot of those chains operating on slim margins with uh, and, and carrying a lot of debt, you're going to see bankruptcies. To make matters worse, as uh, uh, this report details, some chains opted to expand aggressively in recent years, which has oversaturated the market and, uh, of course, fueled an increase in restaurant debt levels, as I was suggesting. Uh, Michael Halen from uh, Bloomberg Intelligence, you're going to see a lot of bankruptcies. You're going to see chains go under. The growth in fast food restaurants had already slowed to its lowest rate in at least 20 years in 2019 as you had companies start to curb the growth of previous years. Of course, the expansion was encouraged by cheap debt, low interest rates. Uh, but in the last uh, few weeks, Russell 2000 Restaurant, you know, it's a small cap uh, index, Russell 2000 Restaurants Index plunged more than 50% this month. Companies like Jack in the Box, Brinker, Denny's registering declines of 70% in March. On the S&P, Starbucks, McDonald's, Yum! Brands all declined about 20% or more in the same period. There's been a little bit of rebound, but obviously significant uh, hammering. Uh, the uh, National Restaurant Association is projecting a decline in sales by $225 billion in the next three months, leading to between 5 to 7 million job losses, which uh, you know is approaching half 
of the industry's employment population. And, of course, companies are moving to curb expansion. That's obvious. Well, and this speaks to the larger discussion we were having earlier about the most important thing you can do is keep people in their jobs. So with the big players, you know, the S&P companies, the McDonald's of the world, okay, fine, uh, uh, secured low-interest loans. With the smaller players operating on thinner margins, you know, that that there is a, a need to get payroll covered post haste. That's where Congress should be focusing its uh, energy and the resources that it can bring to bear Congress and the president rather than on encouraging, trying to encourage them to take on more debt to make payroll to accommodate business. They can't get back. As we discussed with Michael Strain from the American Enterprise Institute yesterday, dinner and a movie. It's going to be very different after COVID-19. This is the Dan Prop Show. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I mentioned uh, this gentleman in our discussion on the economic response to the covid crisis with john tamney from real clear markets but let's hear him uh, let's hear him in his own words bill ackman who is a hedge fund billionaire on what he believes the public policymakers should do mr president the only answer is to shut down the country for the next 30 days and close the borders you say tell all americans that you are putting us on an extended spring break at home with family keeping only essential services open the government pays wages until we reopen i know from our conversations that you have been worried for some time what, how did it manifest today with these tweets and going public maybe just a little bit of context you know I, i'm an optimist um, but beginning in i don't know late january i was getting increasingly bearish and i woke up with a nightmare and my nightmare was you have this virus that replicates uh, and infects incredibly rapidly. You know, each person infects two and a half people, each of whom infect two and a half people. You know, one becomes two, two becomes four, four becomes 16, 16, 256, 65,000. You get to just massive, massive numbers. I'm watching this thing roll out uh, in China. It kills, you know, one to two percent of the people. In China, the number's been closer to four. People think that's because the health system's been overwhelmed, but one to two percent means friends and family are going to die. Uh, the concentration was uh, the effect for sort of older people, uh, older people with uh, lung or cardiac conditions. I have a father who's almost 81. He's, uh, you know, he's got he had lung cancer. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, you, so you heard what the proposal was as he's describing the basis for it. Um, you know, you can be a hedge fund billionaire and not be uh, the uh, uh, most uh, grounded public policymaker. This is a little bit more than wealth management. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by John Cochran, who's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. John, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Uh, John, so what do you think of what what Bill Ackman proposed, 30 days and uh, just hold everything harmless and pretend like the next month didn't uh, uh, the next month didn't actually occur. Sort of it's sort of a stop the clock, as a couple of other economists have proposed. Yeah, um, that is pretty much what it turns out our government's doing. Um, and it's true with a virus, you want to hit it hard, fast before it replicates. It would be uh, been a lot cheaper to do this sooner rather than later, but uh, here we are. 
given that's what our government's going to do, uh, shut everything down for a month, uh, I think the thing we need to focus on is how to make sure the economy is alive to turn back on again uh, when it's all done. Well, does the what has been proposed in the Senate, uh, is that something that sounds like uh, it was it's, it's equal to the task of keeping the economy alive so there's something to turn back on? Yeah, I would, of course, uh, I'm glad they're doing something. <laughs> uh, the problem is uh, not all of us have the kind of savings or a, a job that keeps paying us um, for a month of extended staycation at home. And businesses in particular have bills to pay. So if you just simply stop everything for a month, you get a wave of business bankruptcies, and a lot of people uh, also don't have enough to pay their bills. So that is, if the government's going to shut down the economy for a month, uh, it would be nice to have an economy ready to go again afterwards. And so the Senate's stepping up as is the House. I would rather they lent money rather than give money to people. I think that gives you more money where it's needed at less uh, cost to the taxpayer. Uh, we can't go on just giving everybody a thousand dollar check, and that's not going to be enough. That's not going to keep the airlines in business. They're all going to go bankrupt if this keeps on for a while. So me, I think a focus on lending rather than sending checks would be uh, would be a better way to do it. Let me let me just take a step back. I mean, can we shut down the economy for a month? Can we really stop time or just tell everybody to shelter in place for for the next thirty days? I mean, that's not happened yet. It's happened with uh, probably a fifth of the population when you include New York, California, and Pennsylvania. But it hasn't happened nationwide yet. Uh, yeah, well, we, you can't stop, obviously, time. Uh, quote, essential, unquote, businesses have to keep open. The grocery stores, the people who bring food to the grocery stores, they got to keep going. The uh, hospital system, of course, as well. Uh, but a lot of the rest of the economy is shut down. And, uh, and that, I don't think, can go on forever. Um, so uh, Having enough financial resources that businesses don't have to go bankrupt, I think primarily through lending, is step one. Step two, they need a plan fast for how to reopen the economy. Uh, it's a real sledgehammer to say nothing may open. Okay, that can last for a week or two. That can't go on for month to month. Uh, so uh, we, we need to. They need to figure out fast how to let your local dry cleaner open. Uh, you know what's. What's a set of virus-safe practices that they can say, okay, if you follow these, you can reopen again. Um, they, they need to get going on that. Uh, when we come back with John Cochran, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, Adjunct Scout at the Cato Institute, uh, I want to ask the question that uh, Kim Strassel wrestles with in the Wall Street Journal. Is uh, coronavirus vindicating capitalism or indicting it? More with John Cochran right after this. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're talking to John Cochran, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Kim Strassel writing the Wall Street Journal yesterday. Uh, here's the lesson of the virus so far. Relying solely on government bureaucracy is insane. To the extent America is weathering this moment, it is enormous in enormous part thanks to the strength, ingenuity, and flexibility of our thriving competitive capitalist players. Government will save us? How's that working out for Italy and she goes on from there. So Kim Strassel's put a marker down that it's uh, capitalism is the way forward, not government planning, not the central planners. Is that uh, your view, John? 
<laughs> well, I'm always for capitalism and freedom, uh, hard to be against it. But you are in an emergency. The government shouldn't be completely shut down. And this is a classic case here that if, if you go out and infect everyone else because you feel like going out and doing it, that's that's bad and the government has to stop you. But the point Scott Kim made, um, testing was a disaster uh, when our government tried to keep a monopoly on it and uh, letting the private companies at it has, has finally fixed that problem. China clamped down on their economy fast, but the, China got into trouble because they don't allow freedom of press. They didn't uh, allow the news of what was happening to, listen, to get to their leaders' ears. So our wildly free press, of which you're a part, is an important part of, part of it. Your colleague uh, at uh, Hoover Institution, Richard Epstein, um, is taking the view that what has been proposed is idiotic in, in no uncertain terms is what he said when we talked to him earlier in the show. He also suggests that uh, the shutdowns per California, New York and Pennsylvania and any sort of national shutdown is a wild overreaction to what we know to be true about the spread and lethality of the virus to this point, that the projections about 25 million Californians being infected and so forth just has no basis in statistical sanity. Uh, what's your view on whether or not this is an appropriate reaction to this point or it's an overreaction or at minimum, as the Wall Street Journal opined, the editorial board, this is a time where we should maybe do a little bit of a stop, look and listen and reassess the response to this point? Well, I think the Richard Epstein's of the world and Dan Henninger as well at the Wall Street Journal are saying, wait a minute here, uh, ought to be listened to. The appropriate response, uh, you know, we don't do this for the flu, they keep pointing out. 30,000 people a year die in traffic accidents, and we don't shut down all uh, all of the roadways. So uh, what we do does have to be proportionate to uh, what the uh, difficulty of this disease is. And if this were killing 10% of people, then I think we'd all be for an even more uh, stringent national shutdown as it is. The answer is that the response should be calibrated to what the actual uh, medical um, problems are of this uh, disease, which is, is only slowly coming out. I'll give a let's listen to them and think hard about what they have to say uh, endorsement there. All right. And with respect to, again, what uh, is being uh, advanced by Senate Republicans, the checks to individuals to a certain income threshold, the low interest loans you talked about. Are there other things that could be done that are politically palatable? Maybe it's not possible to get a massive capital gains tax cut or capital gains tax holiday because of House Democrats. But maybe it is possible to rather than do low interest loans for service sector, small businesses for travel and hospitality, just cover their payroll straight away, because what kind of incentive do they have to go into debt to cover payroll for business they can't recoup, for example? I think the loans the loans are important, whether they're low interest or high interest is not so important. Not salting the loans up with a lot of extra conditions. We came into this completely unprepared, and I hope our government comes out with uh, the that they will create a decent virus pandemic plan so they can get things moving faster next time. There's a lot of rules with small business loans, and the Senate is talking about adding more rules. Okay, you can have a loan, but only if you keep your employees. Well, um, that that's not obviously the flexible way to get money where it's needed. Um, so, you know, ramping up the lending, I think, is the most effective thing to do. Uh, handing out checks, not so effective uh, right now. And also, we, we got to not spend money too much like a drunken sailor. There is only so much money out there, even for the federal government. What about uh, some things that had been proposed that are not incorporated in what uh, proposed by economists that are not incorporated what the Senate Republicans proposed, for example, um, eliminating the uh, the early withdrawal penalty 
uh, for people to access funds in their IRA. So you encourage people, if they need to access their money, but in an IRA, they can do so without penalty as a way to help, you know, bridge the gap for now. That's one thing. Yeah, that's absolutely. <clears throat> you know, the government's view is it will give everyone a thousand bucks. Now, that's great if what you need is uh, the people who need it to buy food. That's fine. But what about the you know person who has a mortgage and a lot of debts to pay? Um, so being able to take money out of your retirement account. Basically, what we all need right now is, is enough savings to get us through a month or two of enforced we're not working. And uh, if you've got the savings, you ought to be able to get at it as the retirement account. Uh, I and a bunch of others have clever ideas to borrow from the IRS. Um, why, why not let you borrow against your future tax payments? That's a, the IRS knows how to come get the money back from you. Um, people, people who, in order to not default on their debts, need more than a thousand bucks a month, need a way to get that more than a thousand bucks a month out. And, and part of that would be part of what you're talking about too. Is, is at least some of that is contained in the Republican proposal to push off uh, tax deadlines, to defer payroll tax payments, to um, to be able to carry back losses to offset against uh, the previous five years of profits for businesses, those sorts of things. Yeah, absolutely. And then we could go one step further and, hey, the IRS will send you some money if you promise to give it to, and, and the IRS will, will get it back. But those are ways to get uh, cash. What we're seeing now in the markets is this scramble for cash. Every, everybody needs cash. And, um, you know, well, we gotta, they got to be able to get to it. Uh, and, uh, you know, bankruptcy isn't the end of the world. Uh, that, that's a way of getting at the cash owned by bondholders. Uh, bankruptcy really just means reorganization. The stockholders lose everything. The bondholders take a bath, and you reopen again the next day. Um, so for large corporations, uh, we don't have to bail out every single large company in the world. Small businesses, they, they don't get protection. They don't get reorganization. They get shut down and liquidated. Uh, so we, we want to avoid that for sure. Right. I mean, I, the, the, and the question is, do those uh, low-interest secured loans, does that do enough to prevent – a real hemorrhaging in employment, and then you're talking about real costs on the other side between uh, whatever subsidizing COBRA and unemployment insurance, and just trying to get people reemployed in what could be a very, very grim uh, uh, economy, a uh, uh, you know economy in recession. Yeah, exactly. This this is a, an important point to keep in mind. What we're trying to do now is mothball an economy in a way that can come back again. This is very different than 2008 when we're trying to uh, stop a recession. So stimulus is completely pointless. We do not want people to go out and spend money to revive the economy because the government shut down the economy. Um, the, the point is to, to keep things alive so it's ready to go again when, when the uh, virus passes. He is John Cochran, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. John, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show, and uh, we've been treated to the contributions from a lot of great artists this week. Been happy to uh, forward along their serenades of, uh, well, their indigenous uh, populations where they're. Where they live, for example, Mauricio Marchini in Florence, uh, as well. Uh, you heard uh, from Yo-Yo Ma yesterday with a, uh, a Bach, uh, uh, with the cello performance of Bach uh, Symphony Number no. Three. Uh, 
uh, as a tribute to all the frontline health care workers. And uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber is getting into the act. Andrew Lloyd Webber offering um, this serenade uh, just in tribute to everybody. You know, it's the thing that's the, the nature of music being triumphant and hopeful. Uh, his uh, All I Ask of You from Phantom, Andrew Lloyd Webber. Hi, everybody. I didn't think I'd ever get such a response to this little tryout. Um, here I am in my enforced cell phone isolation. And um, the song that came out on top today was All I Ask of You. Uh, gosh, all I ask is that I can play the piano properly this morning. We'll see what happens. Anyway. One more talk of darkness. Again, these wide-eyed tears. Okay. Yeah. Nice gesture. Thank Andrew Lloyd Webber. And apropos of nothing other than Phantom, I thought, oh, uh, how about one of the great performances ever in Britain's Got Talent, uh, launching the career of uh, Jonathan Antoine, who's become a renowned opera singer. Remember Jonathan and Charlotte's tribe, Britain's Got Talent, their version of uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber's The Prayer from Phantom? My prayer for everyone is you have a safe and healthy weekend and join us again on Monday. Dan Prof signing off. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.